0: Listening to Wake Up and Read the Labels, your guide to eating simple and feeling good. If you want to eat clean and feel your best, guess what? You're in the right place. Each week we talk about ingredients that may be holding you back from feeling your best. We also talked to some brands that are going against the grain and actually using real ingredients we can recognize. Plus, we're sharing stories with people who are just like you, who actually woke up and read the labels. Welcome to Wake Up and Read the Labels podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about all the flaws in the regulatory system that fails to protect children, the role of elected officials in pesticide reduction in policy, and the solution, including steps you can take to reduce pesticides. Unfortunately, we don't always like to cook meals at home. We want to go out to eat. We want a break from doing the dishes and cooking the food and running to the grocery store and figuring out what to eat. However... When you go out to eat, even if you're eating the healthiest thing on the menu, a lot of the times you are consuming pesticides that are causing havoc on your life in your body. I'm going to be going live today with Bruce Lanfear, who is a professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simone Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia. Plus, Kim Conti is the founder of the national nonprofit organization that we are diving into called Non-Toxic Neighborhoods. Welcome, Kim and Bruce. How are you? Good morning. Thank you. Doing great. Let's go. I'm excited. Yeah, so both of you were just talking and you're like, ugh. I want to go eat at your house so I can get a break from pesticides. Like what
1: exactly what are pesticides?: Our full-time job. <laughs> I think um, pesticides, again, it's something that I blissfully was really unaware of until I became a parent. And for me, Bruce has heard the story. So from 30,000 feet, we were lucky enough to call Bermuda home, and Bermuda as a country had banned glyphosate as a country. And that's kind of when I started looking into the dangers. And once I found out that it's common practice to utilize glyphosate roundup 240 on baseball fields, parks, where our boys play, I felt as a parent that I failed them because up until then, I'm trying to feed them organic food as much as possible. And enjoy them and keep them safe and and in an environment where they could thrive. So the more I looked into where pesticides are used, how frequently they're used, that was my aha moment to kind of switch gears and focus on, you know, looking at what we could do to protect, you know, my children and other community members from these hidden dangers that are lurking in, unfortunately, most parks and playgrounds and schools and your neighbors are
0: wow. So, I'm always under the impression we need to worry about pesticides and food, but I seriously haven't even thought about schools and playgrounds. So, you're saying they're getting absorption through the skin,
1: yes, inhalation. And again, Bruce Lanfear, our amazing advisor, he was our OG orig- original gangster advisor back in 2015 when I found the video he made, Little Things Matter, which. Um, we definitely want to share with you because I think it illustrates the impact. You know, it's not just the exposure we get through the food we're eating, but it's through, like you said, dermal exposure. Children have hand-to-mouth behavior when they play with their friends, they're playing on the playground, they come in contact with things, they're lower to the ground, and it's just, it's accumulative. So it's, it's something that, you know, we didn't think of. And I think it's because we trust, That if a school is using something or a city is using something, that it's been proven safe to do so. And that's unfortunately not the case.
0: Yeah. And so I'm sure a lot of people listening are going, okay, crazy people, we're all, you know, living (laughs) our life and none of us are going dying. We're all okay. Y'all are freaking out over nothing because I can see a lot of people thinking this. But I think what most people may not understand is there are quiet, symptoms, right? Or there are symptoms that are associated with exposure to this that we're not directly correlating. Can you tell us about maybe some of those symptoms and what exposure to glyphosate is for a child?
2: Let me just say that when you think about pesticides, let's start out big and then we'll focus in. So pesticides can be anything used to kill or control pests. And the pests can be insects, they can be weeds, they can be Uh, fungi. So it's quite broad. And oftentimes we just think about them as pesticides. There are about 200,000 people every year that die from acute pesticide poisoning, very high dose pesticide poisoning. So even at just at that level, that's pretty tragic. But what you're talking about, the slow poison is when people are exposed over time or at very vulnerable periods in their life, like when the fetus is developing and going through you know thousands of different steps to get to the point where you go from a single cell to a baby, a newborn and so we worry particularly about those, but long chronic exposure can lead to problems like Parkinson's disease in early exposure during fetal development, childhood leukemia, ADHD, preterm birth and so these aren't as apparent as an acute Pesticide death, but they add up, and because there's likely not safe levels, and even at the low levels that we're all routinely exposed to, it will increase the risk of dying or some of these conditions that we just talked about.
0: okay, why don't you uh, Bruce, tell me how you got involved with this and became an advisor and started you know this movement with Kim of trying to rid our society. It seems like community by community, you guys are doing this, kind of biting away at the elephant. How did you get involved in that?
2: Well, I started out mostly focused on trying to prevent lead poisoning in children. But I became very clear that even for something as well-established as a poison, like lead, it was taking much too long to regulate it. And so I started to work with my brother on developing videos and trying to find ways to communicate the science to parents. Because... I ultimately decided that these questions about how we regulate pesticides and other toxic chemicals are too important to leave up to the politicians and the policymakers. Parents, pediatricians need to get involved. And so we started to develop these videos. And then I think it was in 2016, I got an email from Kim, who was quite excited about our video. And so we started talking. We Uh, worked together. I know it seemed like every other week for quite a while, but quite often (laughs) we helped to develop some graphics. And then when Kim had questions, she would reach out to me. And within a few years, Kim was teaching me things. So it really became a two-way street.
0: That's amazing. Okay. And so Kim, has this always been a passion of yours? Or I know you said before, um, it was kind of when you were in Bermuda that this light bulb went off, right?
1: Uh, this is not a passion of mine. I I can't wait until this is something that we don't have to work on. No school district or municipality wants to hear that they're using chemicals that could potentially harm the residents or students, teachers, and staff. So it, it's it's not really easy. It's just something that we have to do until safe parks and playgrounds and schools are the norm and not the exception. One example that we like to share is regarding the pesticide exposure when you consume food versus, you know, what shows up in your system is this little girl, Lily, that lives in Orange, California, and her parents had a difficult time getting pregnant. So Lily was, you know, their miracle child. So they admittedly were probably, you know, over the top helicopter parents and they had her on a strict organic diet and all these things um, but she was showing developmental delays so at her four-year checkup with her pediatrician he ordered lab work and he found that her little system was at 90 at the 95th percentile of glyphosate in her system that's the active ingredient roundup and that she was literally off the charts with 240 in her system and that is half of what makes up agent orange and it's it's a selective herbicide. So it's actually applied to the turf. So any child that comes in contact with the turf has a risk of exposure. And we pulled the pesticide usage reports for Lily's park next to her home that they would, you know, her mom thought she was doing like the right thing, letting Lily get out and run barefoot and play with her friends and collect sticks and rocks and be a kid when, we looked at the pesticide usage reports that directly linked back to what we were finding in her system. So it's, it's not anything that I think parents should have to do, but just like how you help educate people and how it's so critical to be vigilant about reading labels. It's the same thing with, you know, where are your children playing? Where are they spending most of their time and what are they being exposed to and what are ways, what simple steps can you take to protect them?
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. I love that you shared all this. I got so many questions for you, and I'm actually not even asking the questions that I wanted to ask before we started recording. <laughs> what tests can the parents get for their kids to see the level of
1: pesticides in their system? For Lily, it was a, a urine test, but now there are lots of labs offering it. We wish that it was part of yeah. just the annual checkup. Um, it's not, so parents have to, of course incur a $500 charge, but I've heard there are more cost-effective labs that you can use. So it just, it lets you know kind of what's in their system. And I have never done it because I'm doing everything (laughs) we possibly can. And I think it would just be really exciting to see if my children had similar levels. So we're just always trying, you know, from organic foods to hopefully playing on organically maintained baseball.
0: Okay. And I know that you also mentioned, I said, is it your passion? And you're like, well, it's not my passion. I can't wait till this is beyond me. And, you know, this doesn't exist in our world anymore. But is that actually attainable in our lifetime? Like, I don't know how long does it take to change a school district or a community? And how do you even approach a school district or a community? Because now, I look, I'm the freak mom in my kids' school. I'm proposing, like, <laughs> I don't want, you know, the synthetic artificial air fresheners in the rooms, turf. the candles. And they're like, lady, you need to leave. So if I tell them <laughs> they need to like reevaluate their turf, I don't even know how to go by doing that.
1: It's simple. And the whole goal is so no one has to reinvent the wheel. You know, we've learned through lots of trial and error how to do this. We first worked with Irvine Unified School District. In 2016, as well as the city, and they both adopted organic management policies. And again, through that, we learned what municipalities and school districts can use that are truly organic. And to your point with the importance of reading labels is the amount of greenwashing happening right now is really hard to navigate. And really the only way to navigate that is to ensure that if your neighbor, if you, if your school district wants to use an organic pesticide, then it needs to be OMRI listed and WASA certified, Washington State Department of Ag certified, because there are distributors that have organic in the name, but the products that they're pushing are not organic. So the whole goal is to move away from toxins, synthetic toxins anywhere. And then we also want to make sure that we're not ending up in a game of pesticide whack-a-mole. And to answer your question, so if it's your school where they're already loving you because you have issues with, you know, fragrance and candles and those issues, you just request the pesticide usage report from the maintenance and operation department. And that's just so we can see what's going on. Anybody that reaches out to us that we help, we've helped now over 200 municipalities and school districts transition to organic management. We just share what they can use instead. So we don't want to make anybody feel bad about what they're using. We're all constantly told that a lot of these um, pesticides are safe if you follow the label. and, And that's really just proving not to be true. You can look at, I guess, Roundup is the current favorite herbicide to hate right now, but it's again, just moving away from that. What can the school use in place of that? And so that's what we focus on.
0: Okay. So it sounds like I go ask or anyone listening, go ask your school, your baseball fields, your soccer fields, all the things for a pesticide usage report. And then we send all that information to you to try to get you to come in.
1: Yes. Well, and we'll just give you a list of what can be used. And depending on if Someone's comfortable having those conversations. You know, some cities like Naperville, Illinois, a, a mama bear took is on and wow. she needed very limited help from us, which is yeah. great because you know, we want to be able to help as many people as possible. So we give and provide the tools that you need. So if, you, if you're dealing with a school district, you get a toolkit. If you're dealing with a municipality, you get a toolkit. If you're dealing with your roundup loving neighbor, we have resources and research to back that up.
0: And I'm curious, why are pesticides deemed safe when there are so many reports showing harmful side effects? Like, who's actually in the right here?
2: So you have to go back about 50 or 60 years ago. Chemicals were really coming into play after World War II, and they were seen as a part of progress. Then we had some disasters, Minamata Bay with widespread mercury poisoning, thalidomide from a drug where uh, children were born without limbs. So there were these disasters and we knew we had to do something. Something had to be done. And there was a lot of thought early on that maybe we could make sure that chemicals are safe, completely safe before they're put on the market. But pretty soon it became clear that there were too many. And so this idea that we could come up with acceptable levels was born. Now, what does acceptable mean? Well, in a sense, it means that a little sickness, a little death is okay, so as not to impede economic progress. That's the basic idea. So, for example, Texas was recently going to develop a regulation. They said, well, you know, it's okay if one one in 10,000 people develop cancer from this this chemical or this pollutant. Well, if you start to add that up, there's over 3,000 high production volume chemicals. So let's say that even a fraction of those, maybe about 10%, caused 1 in 10,000 people to develop cancer. So now you've got somewhere between 3,000 people from one cancer, and that's going to be about 3,000 people in the United States. But now recognize we don't just have one chemical, one pesticide out there. It's a lot, thousands. And so now you multiply that, and you can begin to see that pesticides and toxic chemicals couldn't contribute quite a bit to the burden of cancers around the world. It's not trivial, but it's this idea that there are acceptable levels. And then what happens is over time, as we've exposed people, as people have been exposed to pesticides, uh, then you begin to realize, whoops, this one looks like it's causing leukemia. And after 10 or 20 years of research and dozens of studies in the lab and dozens of human studies, Maybe finally it's taken off the market, but it takes a long time. So once a pesticide is approved, it's like a seal of approval and getting it off the market takes a huge amount of effort. So that's sort of how we've gotten to this place where our regulators, I think because they're caught up in this, they don't have an adequate mandate, they don't have adequate resources, are essentially minimizing the new science until it can no longer be ignored.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay. So are all these pesticides equal in harmfulness? Like how does how does one read the pesticides with the labels? Are all the ingredients active in inactive on these labels?
1: So the the unfortunate thing is that with most pesticides, the inert ingredients aren't shared. It's considered the secret sauce, so they'll share the active ingredient. So for Roundup, it's glyphosate. And there are off-brand labels of glyphosate-based herbicides where if the active ingredient is above 41%, it's considered a concentrate and the other inert ingredients aren't shared. And to Bruce's point when he was talking about, you know, the idea of a chemical being safe, pesticide being safe, DDT, you know, since we don't have the precautionary principle here, like Bruce shared, a a pesticide goes to market and you have to wait until enough people get sick that something is pulled off the market. And with glyphosate, Roundup, I feel like it's playing out a lot like DDT did. DDT was marketed to everybody as safe. They used to actually make nursery wallpaper. They would line it with DDT. They would fog Um, Beaches, DDT, kids would play in it. We heard stories from people that they would actually play in the white powder that would be coming off the fogging of the trap. But with Roundup there, because of all of these lawsuits, some people think that Roundup's going to be pulled from home and garden stores, but that's not the case. They're going to keep continuing to sell Roundup. They're just swapping out the active ingredient. Glyphosate with a similar active ingredient. And that kind of gets us back into the pesticide whack a mole. And then reading labels, pesticides like Roundup have a caution signal word. You have caution, warning, danger. But again, how do we, you know, how's the EPA assigning these signal words when? They don't even test the inert ingredients. And I think Bruce does such a beautiful job explaining this part. But until I got into this work, I always assumed that if EPA, if the EPA, you know, allowed something to go to market, again, it's been tested for safety when, in fact, the EPA rarely tests any of the chemicals that actually make it to the market. Bruce, do you want to share... How the EPA so unfair <laughs> <You> know, like <laughs>
2: it's important to distinguish between the the active ingredient the pesticide like glyphosate like and the, the inactive ingredient and so US EPA recently threw up their hands and said we're not going to even bother to try to test these inactive ingredients we just don't have the resources, and so it's going to take too long for pesticides they tend to go through more rigorous testing than other environmental chemicals, but they're much weaker than how we regulate drugs. And that may seem like it makes sense because this idea that there are safe levels, but what we've learned over the past three decades is that's not true. For some of the most well-studied toxic chemicals like air pollution and asbestos and lead and tobacco smoke and benzene, there aren't safe levels. And OP pesticides, there's not safe levels. And so even though most of us may not be exposed to high levels, those chronic Unrelenting exposures to things like pesticides result in an increased risk in chronic disease. Or in the developing baby, in the fetus, uh, they can result in preterm birth or diminished IQ or increased risks of behavior problems. I think the key thing here is that we've been told that these pesticides are essential. We need them to feed the world, we need them to make our parks and school playgrounds pretty. And it's simply not true. And that's what Kim has been doing is being able to show that not only can we make our parks and playgrounds pretty, we can actually make them healthier. And the uh, United Nations 10 years ago said, we don't need pesticides to feed the world. Now, it may take us some time to get from where we are today to where we'd like to be, but that's where we should be moving.
0: So let's get into some, you're talking about, you know, freeing up some of these communities and allowing it to thrive without the use of these pesticides. I'm curious to know, are there any States in the U S that have banned glyphosate? So
1: we were able to work with, so New York state is the first state that has banned glyphosate, which was great. And that was that we worked on that. We didn't expect it to actually go through that's still the only state that has banned glyphosate. And on top of that, we worked with the New York City Parks Department to adopt organic management into law. So all five boroughs are organically maintained. And if you look at Central Park, I mean, it's proof of concept. You know, it's a very high expectation park and site, and it's beautiful. It just it took a while to kind of go through all of their... Uh, different departments and the conservancies and all the people involved, but it just shows that from New York City to California to Texas to all the places that we've worked with, that it, regardless of climate and soil conditions that turf conditions improve when you break this chemical dependence on controlling pest pressure and utilizing so many herbicides that you then need to use inputs, that are synthetic and also harmful.
0: That's amazing. So the whole state of New York, none of their parks or school districts use pesticides.
1: New York City Parks Department. So all five boroughs, all of the parks. Still? Yeah. No,
0: it's exciting. How (laughs) long did it take for you to get that kind of passed or accepted? And
1: then how long did it take
0: for them to actually switch over?
1: So they had protections in place for schools, but it didn't carry over to the parks. So Ben Kalos, then council member, worked to update the law regarding how the parks are managed. And we just had to work with the parks department to make sure that they had access to herbicides and other organic insecticides and different things that they can utilize in place of synthetic pesticides. And what's nice about New York, too, is that they also have a dormant season. So when we first started working on this effort, we wanted to focus on areas that don't have a break. They get exposure to these chemicals year round.
0: So do you have any success stories that you want to share about maybe a child that was, you know, in those parks and at those schools And then it got switched over. And do you get any feedback from mama bears that are like, hey, this has changed about my kid?
1: Our goal is really just to make sure that no one ever gets sick just from playing the sport they love or going to a park that's been treated with a known carcinogen. And again, the the focus is just so no family gets that call when we first started working on this effort, one of the parents' daughters had brain cancer and she's thriving now. She's doing great, but that was really traumatic for her family and learning about Irvine, California and just through Lori's contacts through the uh, Pediatric Cancer Research Foundation that helps families once they do get that phone call. We reached out to families that she was helping in Irvine, and just with those families, Irvine, California was 500 times higher regarding pediatric cancer than the national average. So that really kind of motivated us to work on getting these policies passed. But it's it's just the smoking gun is what I think the chemical industry takes advantage of because it's it's hard to connect. The pesticides that they're applying directly back to a specific disease, cancer, and things like that. So Bruce shares something that I really don't understand why more researchers and and pediatricians and MDs aren't focusing on, and that's prevention. You know, why don't we do what we can to get as many chemicals and toxins out of every toolbox and where our children are, are getting the most exposure Instead of focusing it all on research, you know, why don't we focus more on prevention? Bruce, do you want to share your amazing reasoning and scary facts?
2: I think part of the problem is that most parents and most pediatricians aren't asked whether they prefer preventing disease in children versus treating it. Over 96% of our health dollars in the United States goes towards treating disease. There's very little emphasis on preventing disease
0: in education, right? There's no education around it either. Very
2: little. I mean, it's up to the to the advocates like Kim to do that. I did a talk at ten different places around North America. Two two hundred fifty people in Vancouver, pediatricians. Uh, One hundred and fifty at New York University, Orange County. So over a thousand pediatricians were in the audience, and I did a hand raising survey. And I was asking them about childhood leukemia, which is arguably the poster child for finding a cure for cancer. Mortality rates have come down dramatically. But I wanted to know from these pediatricians, how many of them would vote to either increase funding to enhance the cure for childhood leukemia or increase funding to find ways to prevent childhood leukemia? What I found might surprise you, only five pediatricians, five out of 1,000 plus pediatricians. let that about about one half of 1% said they would vote to increase funding to enhance the cure. Everybody else wanted to increase funding to prevent childhood leukemia.
0: That means there's still hope in the world.
2: Absolutely. And my guess is that the parents would vote alongside the pediatricians. But listen to this. 1% of the National Cancer Institute's budget for childhood cancer, 1% is devoted to prevention.
1: Wow. Big business. It's sad. Heartbreaking.
0: Right? All big business, sickness in healthcare. And you know, it's funny, they call it health And I tell them, well, it's not health care. You don't go see your doctor when you're healthy. You don't go to the hospital and, you know, they teach you how to be healthy. No, it's sick care. You got to be sick to check in. Then they give you a bunch of medication to treat it or try to cure it. And then they leave and you go back to having no idea how to actually take care of yourself again, right?
2: It's even more difficult than that because in a way, so much of our culture is driven by consumption buying, consumerism, we've actually created an environment that makes it easy to become sick. And too often we put the burden on families. So we're doing that now with pesticides, right? It used to be that we would blame mothers of lead poisoned kids because they didn't clean their house well enough. Well, I did a study, a randomized controlled trial and said, it doesn't work. We can give people cleaning equipment. We can try to motivate them. They couldn't control the amount of lead in their environment. But guess what happened when you took lead out of gasoline? Blood lead levels plummeted. So what we need to do are find those population strategies, those ways to remove these toxic chemicals from our environment and quit blaming parents or putting the burden on parents to figure out how to do it for every one of their families.
0: Yeah. So what What are three things someone listening can do to try to either take action or minimize their exposure to pesticides.
2: Well, I'll start with maybe just shifting to organic whenever possible. What we've seen, and there's new studies every month on this, if you shift to organic, you can...
1: Including your study.
2: Including our study that just came out this past month. You can immediately... He's so modest.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Bruce, Bruce, we do have to toot your horn on the studies because that is... (laughs) consistency, that is work, that is not something that everyone is cut out to do. So thank you for doing that.
2: So you could see an immediate drop in the pesticides in children and families when you switch to an organic diet, whether that's OP pesticides or pyrethroids or neonicotinoids or glyphosate. And glyphosate is the most recent one where we found that in pregnant women, if you switch to an organic diet, you see an immediate drop in glyphosate exposure detected in the urine, unless you live near an agricultural field that's during spray season. So we have to think not only about organic diets, but also spray drift. But Kim, maybe you can say more about what can families do about pesticides in their environment?
1: I think it's just as simple. If you have little ones, just set up a meeting with your principal. Uh, We learned that principals have the authority to stop any applications from happening. So have that conversation, touch base with your PTA. Uh, But really, if you just request the pesticide use report from your school district, and then also from your city, then you get an idea of what they are using. And we will just share what they can use instead. And if you have a landscape contractor, maintain your home, we have uh, toolkit on how to have a conversation with them. They're the ones that get the most exposure. And a easy fix is that if you do need to utilize a herbicide, use an organic one. And if you keep it on site, then you know your contractor's using that and maybe not something else that could be in his tank that he or she already mixed. So I think that's just the easiest way is just work to get these chemicals out. And as far as termites and things like that, there are organic controls for all of insecticide, pest pressure issues in your home. And whenever I see those houses tented, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> so, How is that something you want to do in your home? You know, how is that impacting, you know, your towels and your sheets and everything else that is in your home when they, when they fog your house? So I think it's just breaking this dependence on thinking that we need chemicals to solve pest pressure. I mean, there's positive pest pressure and negative pest pressure. So the goal is just make sure that you just eliminate whatever is causing the pest pressure without ever having to use synthetic chemicals.
2: Yeah. Kim and I both talked about how families can do that. And that's important in the short term because things aren't going to change overnight. But in the next five or 10 years, people shouldn't have to continue to do this on their own. Our governments, our regulators, our leaders should move us in this direction so that in the end, parents can worry about making sure their kid's doing well in school or feeding them whatever is available rather than having to worry about whether there's toxic chemicals in their kid's environments.
0: Yeah. As a society, we all need to level up with each other. Actually, I'm good friends with the mayor of my town. And now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, oh, he usually just hangs out with the husbands and the guys, but I might have to corner him next time we're hanging out and be like, hey, listen up here. <laughs> okay. For everyone listening, go follow Non-Toxic Neighborhoods on Instagram and Facebook. You can also go to their website, which is? nontoxicneighborhoods.org. Perfect. And tell me about your Non-Toxic Neighborhoods Organic Toolkit.
1: So it's designed similar to Bruce. We were really excited to get Jane Goodall as an advisor. So when she put out a quote in support of us, and when I got to meet her, she just asked for ways to help streamline this for anyone. And That was the point where we came up with the organic toolkit. So if you're a land manager working for a municipality, we have what you need. I became certified in organic land management, my background is in traditional advertising. I never thought I'd be a soil nerd, but I definitely needed the street cred because almost everybody we work with in land management and with the landscaping industry, it's very male dominated. So I definitely had to take care of that. And then again, school district, we have policy examples, organic alternatives. We have research where if, say, your school board has questions, unfortunately, there's so much peer review, vetted, very conservative research out there that, that really shares why we need to get these chemicals out of all of these toolboxes where our children are playing. So we, we have toolboxes for everybody and we just um support everybody's pesticide reduction journey from the beginning to the end and we don't go away. I mean some happen quickly. City of Burbank, I think was the we met with city council on Thursday. The mayor brought forward a ban less than a week later.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Well, y'all are doing amazing things. We need people like you. I appreciate all your hard work and efforts and also passion. And also everybody listening can go see non-toxic neighborhoods on social media. Also, they have a button on their website called Take Action. So if you are interested in pesticide reduction, which you should be if you're not, they can help. This is a nonprofit on a mission to make every park, athletic field, and school free of harmful and synthetic pesticides. Well, you've been amazing, Kim and Bruce. I appreciate you so much for coming on today and sharing all the amazing things you're doing to help all of us out there.
1: Thanks, Jen. And, and really quick, Bruce's nonprofit, Little Things Matter, is really how I found him. What Bruce does is he does the research he does all the hard work and then he works with his brother to make these videos to help anyone understand, you know, the impacts of environmental toxins and, and what you can do. So, Bruce, can you share that? I mean, it's yeah. it's so invaluable and
2: important. Yeah, uh, it's littlethingsmatter.ca. And so we end up producing videos and then we put posts on New Science out on Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter or I guess now X. So just to make it available to people because we think it's too important to leave these questions up to our politicians and policymakers. Parents need to get involved.
0: Yeah, so this is a very grassroots way of doing it essentially because the government's not, right?
2: Yeah, they need our help.
0: (laughs) A little bit? Yes. Yes. They need our help. They like it or not. Okay. I'm going to check out all the things. I appreciate you two coming on and I hope you have an amazing day. Okay. Thanks, Jen. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wake Up and Read the Labels. If you like this episode, guess what? We want you to share it. We'd love that. Share it with a friend and leave us a review. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or really wherever you're listening to your podcast. For more information, visit us at wakeupandreadthelabels.com.